fowls in the frith, the fisses in the flood, and I mon wax wood. Salt stirrer I walker with for best of bone and blood. That's it? That's all we got? What? <laughs> what the heck are we supposed to do with an 800-year-old poem the length of a Twitter post? Welcome to Waywards, where we take a few sidelong looks at literature to wonder where we ought to go. I'm Steve Chisnell. And this time, we explore the questions around the short medieval poem, Fowls in the Frith. Well, it's November and the trails are turning cold. Greenery is fading when it does, the paths begin to lose their definition. We left a number of trails after our discussion of Kate Chopin's story of an hour. Among them, uh, who has the right to tell a woman what to do, to think, to be? How do we learn to read aesthetically? What does freedom look like while one lives in a society of responsibilities? How might a woman respond to physical or social captivity? How do silences operate as responses? We learned about the either-or fallacy and how we might reject binary choices. And how do we discover personal power to author change, avoid the tragedy that comes from hamartia? Today I want to explore one or two of these to see where they take us. How do we decide the meaning of a work when the author does not exist? And if we as readers wish to author an interpretation, what significance does that hold for us? Fowls in the frith. The fishes in the flood. Why should nature torment us so? Consider this. Well, first of all, let's make this clear. For this poem, Fowls in the Frith, there is no context really at all. It was found in a book of legal documents, kind of records, just randomly, without any explanation. We don't know if it's a fragment of a poem, a larger work, or if it's complete as five lines. There are no helpful notes around it. There's no author identified, no reason why it should appear there at all. But whoever put it there did take some time. There were some illustrations and some musical notes, a couple of melody lines. And that's it. It demands, then, that we follow the ideas of the intentional fallacy. We have no author to consult, nor should we have desired to find one. We have to interpret it by... what? Intuition? Yeah. From the text, pretty much, by itself. To find out more about the intentional fallacy, by the way, check out episode 2.1, our supplement to this particular episode. The poem is in Middle English which suggests it was not for the clergy alone, not for the church, but for both educated and the uneducated. Latin was the language we used for the educated. So whether it was written by a common person or one of the clergy, it was intended for everybody. Poetry dominated the age, whether it was religious poetry, like the Bible, or songs. Well, riddles were common at the time as well. And in one sense, maybe this poem is kind of a riddle. It certainly raises enough questions. 
So what is at stake for us as we examine this poem today is not only its meaning, that's hard enough to get our heads around, but what to think about how its meaning came to exist. That is, who wrote it? And what did they intend? A close reading, anyone? Now, I'm going to read this poem again, and if you'd like to look at it, it's actually in our show notes. But I'll, I'll read it again, and I'm also going to offer you a kind of quick, more modern English translation. Fowls in the frith, the fisses in the flood, and I mun wax wood. Salt sorrow I walker with, for bist of bone and blood. Now, if I were going to say that in more contemporary English, it might, and I'm going to put a huge asterisk on this, might sound something like this. Birds in the wood, the fishes in the river, and I must go insane. Such sorrow I walk with for the best of bone and blood. Okay, even in its more modern English, it's kind of a challenge so let's take a look at what this might mean. Just let's break it down for a minute to see what we can figure out. Fowls in the frith, the fishes in the flood. Well, obviously lines one and two are about nature. And nature openings are typical of medieval love songs. Elegies, as they were called at the time, uh, are also personal poems of sadness, which were the first to arise then as secular poems, uh, poems that weren't of the church. So, so far, we're not surprised by anything. The birds are in the woods. A frith is kind of a woods. And the fishes are in the flood. A flood could mean a literal flood, or it could mean like a, some moving water, like a stream or river. But then line three gets a little more complicated. And I mun wax wood. But I must go mad. I must go crazy or insane shifts. We have this expectation it's going to be about nature, and then suddenly, no, I have to go crazy. So, of course, we want to find out why. Line four sets up the reason. Such sorrow I walk with. And so we want to find, oh boy, this person's sad. He's going insane because he's so sad. For line five, the answer, the bist of bone and blood. Now, you might be wondering what I'm saying there, and I'm pronouncing it a little ambiguously. Am I saying best, or am I saying beast? At the time of this poem, in the 13th century, the 1200s, there were lots of spellings for beast and lots of spellings for best. There was only one spelling that those two words had in common— and it's the one this poet used, B-E-S-T-E. Best beast. Hmm. The two words are spelled alike. They did not sound alike necessarily when spoken, but what do we do? Is he sad because of some beast of bone and blood, flesh and blood? Such sorrow I walk with for a beast of bone and blood. Or is he saying, such sorrow I walk with for the best of flesh and blood? Well, the second one sounds more likely, but we're going to explore this at some length. And my confusing pronunciation for bist of bone and blood, I'm suggesting that the answer isn't so clear. Otherwise, we need to say about this poem that it is very small, but very beautiful. It spends a lot of time with alliteration. Alliteration is a poetic technique where the beginning sounds of words repeat. Fowls in the frith, the fishes in the flood. The first two lines are all Fs. And then we switch to Ws in line three and four. And I mun wax wood, such sorrow I walk with. And then we have a harsh turnaround with the Bs for best of bone and blood. The alliteration is very nice here. It turns into these beating B sounds at the end. At least six of the words here are ambiguous. But the one that drives the question of the poem is, of course, this last one, best or beast. Is the mystery of this poem part of the poem? Or is it just our ignorance about the poem? 
Is it just that we're not part of the loop? Everyone at the time must have understood what it meant. But we don't, because we lost the context. We lost the history. We lost the author's intent. Or is the poem's significance that it does not offer us a single unified meaning? Let's find out. What is this, anyway? Let's start by taking care of one of the most obvious interpretations of this poem. If he's sorrowful for the best of flesh and blood, the best of flesh and blood is often signified as a woman. And so we have, very likely, a medieval love poem here. I walk with much sorrow because of a woman who is the best of bone and blood. Ah, suggests that she doesn't want anything to do with him. He can't have her. She's unattainable. All the birds and all the fish are having a good time in nature in spring, and they're doing fine. But when he sees them, it just reminds him of his sadness, his madness, his insanity, because he can't have the woman he wants. He's kind of jealous of those fish and birds, I guess. Now, with most texts, we can't ignore the simplest reason and set it aside for a more complicated one. This reading, it seems to me, is pretty straightforward. It's a medieval love poem. He's writing about a woman. And that also fits the time as well, because idealized women are common to love poetry. She's not just any woman. She's the best of bone and blood. She's the best one of all. And she is. She's flesh and blood. She's real. So we take a real woman and we idealize her, we raise her up to being the very best. That's a very common trope or figure of speech in poetry, especially in medieval love poems. To say that that is not the meaning of the poem or that's not here is a little difficult. Now, if he can't attain this woman, we don't know why. Maybe she won't return her affection. So therefore he's lovesick. Maybe she's died. Maybe she's just coy or resistant. Maybe she's of a different social status. Whatever it is, he can't get her. And the poem isn't about the relationship, per se. The poem is about his feelings about the relationship. Now, let's try the same idea, but we're going to take best and make it beast. And we're going to presume for a moment that we're still talking about a woman. So now he says... I walk with much sorrow because of a woman who is this beast of flesh and blood. Wow. Okay, so if that's the case, we still have sorrow. But now he's also taking this woman and insulting her, objectifying her, calling her a beast, kind of like in a misogynistic rage. And that is also a possible interpretation of this that he's angry that he can't have this woman, not merely miserable. He's going crazy because he can't have her. Is it possible, too, that the poet means both of these at once? Think of it as both for a minute. I love her. She is the best. But she's a beast for refusing me. A male speaker expects a female to follow his desire. And we have a whiff of Louise Millard here spoken from the other direction. The role of the woman is to be the perfect love for the man, from the male perspective, of course. It's an interesting poem about relationships in that sense, that there is a thin line, best to beast, bist. There is a thin line of pronunciation and none in spelling between sorrow and rage, and it's quite possible that our speaker is feeling some combination of both. Otherwise, why would the poem use that particular spelling? Now, I should go on to suggest that there is a whole other swath of interpretations here. And up until the 1960s or so, the interpretation that I've given you was pretty much where we left it. But then some other readers said, hey, 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 this poem is a religious poem. It's not necessarily about love at all. What would happen if the best of bone and blood meant humankind as a beast? And so I wander in sorrow because the best of flesh and blood 
people are a mess. We suffer sorrow as humans. Why? Oh, we were cast out of Eden. Eden was a place of nature. I wish I could be like the birds. I wish I could be like the fish. And listening to them in the woods, that drives me nuts. I'm sad because the best of bone and blood, humankind, the beasts of flesh and blood, the, the best of them, are really different from them. We are in a state of sin, and therefore we suffer such sorrow. Here's another interpretation which is also possible, again, a religious interpretation. Perhaps the best of bone and blood, oh, the very best of bone and blood, is Christ himself, who was the best of all living beings. Imagine it that way. The birds and beasts have their natural homes. They're out having a good time in nature. But I'm sad because Christ died on the cross and has no place to rest. Springtime poem. The birds and fish are all frolicking, but springtime is the time of the death and the resurrection. Or is this too far? Yet a third interpretation of the poem is that the speaker of the poem is Christ, and he's lamenting the fallen state of mankind. Imagine Jesus saying this poem, Fowls in the frith, fishes in the flood, and I mun wax wood. Such sorrow I walk with for the best of bone and blood. Oh, well, from that standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. Look at how beautiful nature is. But I can go crazy because I'm walking with sorrow for mankind who has fallen into a state. Whether or not this poem is religious, it's hard to define exactly. Does the music, for instance, help us determine if it was religious? Well, yeah. As it turns out, the music fits well into religious patterns of melody and form. But there's no reason it could not be sung in any style. Troubadours were pretty common at the time and could have done it that way. Historically, religious songs were often created from local folk songs. And vice versa. Folk songs were turned into religious songs. So the music on its own does not definitely tell us that it's religious. Maybe all of these meanings are possible. Well, there is a possibility there, too. This best of bone and blood could be the soul or spirit, which, by the way, happens to be portrayed in many medieval songs as female. The soul or spirit is female. But it depends on how far we want to go. As I was reading about this poem, I found someone who said, no, 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 we're going far too far. This is not a religious poem. It's not even about a woman. It's literally about a lost pet. All these other animals are having a good time, but one that I know, a beast of flesh and blood, is dead. I've lost it. And so, as a speaker of the poem, I'm sad that my pet died. We have a lot of interpretations, and we're going to find out still more before we're done. But this much is true. No matter which interpretation or interpretations we choose, the underlying truth of this poem is still the same. It's a moment of distance and despair, of aloneness. Phenomenology Poet David Weiss writes about the short poem as having what he describes as an eruptive essence, a suddenness. And I really like that idea, that this poem does not give you time to settle in. It does not give you time to even respond. It just comes up, slaps you, and walks away. It is an absolute condition. Eggshell strong, he says. He reminds us that poetry is not being about something, but it's an instance of something. We're not supposed to look at the poem and say, hmm, what is this poem about? And then unwrap this very lengthy sort of thematic idea necessarily. We're supposed to say, what is the condition of this? This is an instance of a moment. It's barely sufficient. It has just enoughness. When we look at this poem, it sets up some very clear responses. On the one hand, we have animal joy and their at-homeness, their enjoyment of the space they're in, versus the 
speakers alienation and heaviness. We have two extreme conditions, and we put them together in these little five lines. And we find ourselves needing to reconcile that somehow. And we're not given time in the short poem to do it. Imagine the same thing with an Emily Dickinson poem. Here's one that operates in the same principle. When bells stop ringing, church begins. The positive of bells. When cogs stop, that's circumference, the ultimate of wheels. The first pair is clear. The bell stop ringing, that's the beginning of church. It's a wonderful moment of celebration of life. But the second two lines, the second combination, must be read juxtaposed as a metaphor. The word ultimate That circumference, the ultimate of wheels when the cogs stop. It demands we move to a figurative, to an aesthetic reading. Ultimate is the farthest, but also the limit, the finality. Life, death, boom. And she leaves us there. What to do with these short poems? We don't have a word in English that captures this idea of how the short poem works. Haiku? The Japanese form? Hmm, Perhaps. But what we recognize is that in this short little kernel of a poem, the center of it lies with the reader, the one who experiences it then. We are hit with the short poem, and it's up to us to respond to it. Back in the day... Just when I told you that the poem comes with no context, I'm going to give you a little context. But my context isn't directly about fowls in the frith. We literally do know almost nothing about it. But we do know a little more about the time when it was hatched. And I want to make a couple of observations about that that may give us an idea about how to think about the poem. The first is, many works that today we see as sacred, or of the church, did not begin that way. A lot of them had pagan origins. As missionaries and others moved through Europe and spread Christian messages, they had to adopt and adapt pagan mythologies, pagan songs, pagan common tales, and they took those in songs and poems and mythologies and turned them into Christian stories. This happened most commonly with gleemen or scops, who sang them at the feasts of nobles. The form of the poem Fowls in the Frith is song-like in the tradition of these troubadours. Nature is a metaphor for love, for instance, or the sadness of the poem, or the idealizing of the woman as best. It was very common with a lot of songs the troubadours would sing in these various courts of noblemen. Can we say more about the music? Oh, absolutely we could. But I just need to say there are equally challenging debates on the notes and the melody, and we're not going to conduct all those here. Ian Pittaway's analysis on early music muse is the best one I've read, but I will say this, all of the debates I've found conclude as inconclusively as so far we have with this poem. So, here are the leaders, these noblemen having the feasts in their castles and keeps, and the troubadours, the gleemen, would come through and sing, and when those pagan leaders became Christian, then the music that they liked became Christian as well. I should point out that even secular poetry was written by the clergy, though. Monks and and priests would write poetry of all kinds. Let's listen to one recording of Fowls in the Frith to see how it's done. I will say it's not the only recording by a long shot, and it's not the only way the melody has been performed.
Now, this song clearly feels religious in its arrangement, but it need not do so. Imagine like one guy with a lute singing it. It's also true that at the time, there was the rise not only of the Christian literature, but of secular literature after the mid-14th century. Now, Fowls in the Frith comes before this, but not by much. In other words, it's a time where we would start to hear original poetry that wasn't created by the church. We're in a transition period for literature. Philosophically, poetry then was discovering a number of ideas. One of them was that the earth was a finite place, a closed space, and life, for better or worse, was inescapable. There's a a poem that I found as I was reading. It's just delightful. I will dispense with the Middle English version and give you the modern version, and it gives you a sense of how it worked, but it tells you about this idea how earth was seen um, by many. Earth took from the earth, earth with woe. Earth drew other earth to the earth. Earth laid earth in an earthen grave. Then earth had of earth enough earth. Kind of a fun poem, but it also lays out the melancholy of what it is to be living your life on this planet. I'm reminded, too, of the words of Jesus in the book of Matthew. This is Chapter 8, verse 20, when Jesus says, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Hey, wait, that sounds almost exactly like this poem. The foxes have holes, the birds have the air, their nests, but the Son of Man hath not to lay his head. And then we have here, fowls in the frith, the fishes in the flood, and I'm on Max wood, such sorrow I walk with the best of beast and blood. Oh, look how wonderful nature is, but the Son of Man has nowhere to go. The alienation from nature is there, even in the Bible. Maybe it isn't such a leap from the secular to the sacred. Speaking of which, in this age of Gawain and the Green Knight, the tension between man and nature that was growing in our literature, here is a lullaby for children. Now imagine you're a little baby and you're being sung to sleep by your father or mother. And these are the words you hear. Beasts and those birds, the fish in the water, and each creature alive made of bone and blood. When they come to the world, they do themselves some good. All but the wretched being that is of Adam's blood. Lullai, lullai, little child, you are made for care. You do not know this world's wildness is placed before you. Oh, now there's a depressing little lullaby. And notice how close it falls to fowls in the frith and its ideas and even its words. Now you may say, we're going too far already. There's too much in here. This wasn't all a deeply religious poem. It's five measly little lines, and that's all there is to it. But I need to remind you that in the Middle Ages, everything is a symbol, a prefiguration of something else. It was an expected part of the production of poetry. We didn't have time for poems that only told a story. They had to resonate with you. They had to stay. And in the Middle Ages, people were used to hearing symbols and metaphors. They understood the power of the reader to insinuate meaning. Think of fairy tales that were sometimes written for adults and later, much later, turned to the stories we know today for children. Now, maybe someday we'll learn more about this poem historically, authorally. Maybe we'll find the guy who claims authorship. Maybe we'll learn more about why that book of law was produced. But we shouldn't have to. If we insist upon a single meaning of this poem and try to figure out what it is, that suggests how misleading our search for authorial intention can be in our understanding of what a poem, especially a love poem, meant to its culture. What I mean is, when we want to find out about the author, we're trying to find the answer, as if there is merely one. 
The search for an authorial intention is often the search for a single answer. It's like a multiple choice test. A, B, C, or D. What if it's B and C? N, A, and G. By being open, by being ambiguous, the poem asks more of us. By asking more, it is saying more, demanding more. To better understand that open, ambiguous demand, I need to take a big detour. That's okay, I'm going to go down this path over here, and it's going to take us a while, but it'll circle back. We've talked a little bit about the poem and its meaning. We'll talk more about that. I want to spend some time investigating the reason this poem has no author. How Literature Works So earlier I said that we were going to look at two things. First, the meaning of the poem, and then who wrote it and what did they intend? In order to get to that second question, I need to go 300 years after the poem and 500 years before us. John Gower, a famous poet of the time, and Thomas Bertoletti both worked under King Henry VIII. Gower wrote a fairly large poem, and Bertoletti printed it. Bertoletti saw himself then as the author or authority of the work that he printed. He printed the poem in such a way, making changes to the formatting on the page, adding some supplementary notes, that it appeared that Gower had done nothing but just compiled a number of other poems together, earlier poems, and that he, Bertoletti, had done all the real work. Then he attempted to gift the poem to King Henry VIII. King Henry VIII looked at this and said, No, no, no. All works should have both the writer and the printer on their covers. Now, lest we thank Henry here for siding with authors, let's remember that he also dissolved the English monasteries, effectively wiping out most song, poetry, and art that was kept there. But what's important about King Henry's decision is that this was a change in 1532 from tradition. There are no copyright laws, of course. None of of that existed. Many writers early on never knew who was publishing their works or in what ways. Printers had nearly complete control over what they did. They had the machines to do it. They could print what they wanted, when they wanted, how they wanted, whether or not the author was around or asked or was giving permission. This dispute between author and printer and a number of other characters went on for years. Even Shakespeare buried this particular fight between Gower and Bertolette into his 1609 play Pericles. It was so famous. So, what's the big deal? All this is meant to say that our idea of author and of the value of author was quite different at the time of Fowles and the Frith. It wasn't anything like how we see authorship today. At the time of this poem, there was a lot of analysis and interpretation of the Bible going on. Exegesis is what it's called. And that framework for thinking about authorship was in place when the printing press arrived. In other words, whatever we were doing with the Bible in terms of our analysis, interpretation, and discussion, and printing of it is what we did when we saw poetry arrive to be printed as well. That meant that there weren't just writers of poems. There were scribes, the people who had written the poem down, commentators, the people who had offered opinions on it, compilers, the people who had brought in different versions, different histories, different copies, and put them together in particular ways, translators from Greek, from Latin, from other languages, and the author, perhaps themselves, the writer. Now we were adding a printer, someone who had a machine to mass produce. Later, we're going to add a lector, the teacher or instructor who's talking about the poem. Scribe, commentator, compiler, translator, writer, printer, lector. Which one is the author? This meant that authorship was a kind of composite affair. A collection or a set of collaborators who worked not together, but sometimes across generations and geographies to bring us our classical canon. You can imagine what this looked like. 
if Plato wrote the words of Socrates, but then those words were translated and collected and passed on to other scrolls and other scrolls and then scribes and commentators added to those and more scribes changed them and someone else compiled them where they were written again and stretched and then someone else commentated and more people compiled them and then they were translated two or three times and then someone printed them and then they finally reached us. How many people authored the words of Socrates? This, of course, suggests that a single, original, authoritative text is problematic. The author of Thomas Aquinas's works is not the guy who died in 1274, but all the people who followed, preserved, enhanced, compiled his works, continued it for over 300 years after he died. Think on this. We have very few original copies of medieval works prior to 1200. What we have has been passed down and passed down for hundreds of years, being changed all the while. That's what I mean by collection or collaboration. We wouldn't see the definition of legal authorship, like that sole ownership model that we understand, until Thomas Hobbes around 1600. In other words, when printing became much more common with books. But even Hobbes and similar models in the 1600s based their copyright upon the person who physically held the only copy of a work. So you were the copyright owner if you owned the book itself, just like if you owned a chair or an apple. Not until the 1700s did we find something closer to what we know now. Let's understand what writers like John Gower and Geoffrey Chaucer and others uh, would do to create works, poems, or tales. They often gathered sources from earlier works and revisioned them. By revision, we mean literally to see again in a new light, in a new way. The goal of authorship was to imitate the old masters, but to produce an original work which rivaled them, built upon them, but is still beneath them, servant to them. How do you do that? If you're a John Gower or Geoffrey Chaucer, you create a work that has truth, intellectual value, and divine inspiration. Therefore, church writers were quite valued. Duns Scotus, William of Ockham, invested texts with divine authority. I'm writing it, but it's because I am being directed by God. If I wanted to be an author then, I needed somehow to take responsibility for the work. And that's something different from creating something that's original, creatively me. Think author of the crime. The author of the crime is the one who designed it, who is responsible for its conception, but not its originality. So we've got Gower and Chaucer and those guys. Are they authors? They are if they demonstrate their understanding of the works from the past, the authority that they have by demonstrating that understanding. If I write a work which imitates a classical work, say from Greece or Rome, that's an act of virtue. Imitation is virtuous. It's not plagiarism. It can't be plagiarism because there is no one called an author who owns a work. Instead, I'm imitating, building upon, and re-seeing the works from earlier history. Milton said literally, quote, one purchases authority by demonstrating one's own gravity and virtue. So it isn't that you get authority by writing something. You get authority or authorship by proving that you're serious and good about the work you're doing. Now, I should say, Milton was quite a businessman of poetry. He worked really hard to construct himself as a man without sin, he wanted no one to see or at least tell about his personal life. So not only did he author things like Paradise Lost, but he also authored himself as an authority. Do notice how different this idea is from our idea today. One is an authority when they are recognized by other scholars as being well-versed. I could be an authority than if I'm a scribe, a commentator, a compiler. 
In no small way, the author is determined then by prestige, politics, social power. I could sign my name to any number of things as a commentator or a scribe or a printer. And people would say, oh, that's his work. To be an author is to secure a place in the past. Now notice how to do so also means one must be well-read. And that means schooling. And that means prestige and the power to afford study. A few Greeks. While we're thinking about this, I want to go back and talk about some language roots as we talk about authorship models, because I'm going to use some words that might become problematic for us until we understand where they came from. I want to talk about the Greek root spire, S-P-I-R. There are a lot of words that have that root in them in English. Conspire, aspire, perspire, inspire, dispirited, spirit or soul. It means breath. Anytime we have S-P-I-R in an English word, it almost certainly has its origin in the word breath. Notice the impact that this is going to have on meaning, but also on ethics. Once upon a time, conspiracy, or to conspire, was not necessarily evil, but just necessity. We would breathe together to accomplish a task. Therefore, compiler, commentator, printer, scribe, they all conspired to continue and create a work. I am inspired by muses or God. The breath is given in or put in me to aspire to be able to reach my breath in order to compose. I'm inspired to aspire. But to do this, I recognize I must conspire with others in the past and present in order to produce my text. Each individual author must negotiate among the many voices heard in order to arrive at a new version. Rather than simply imitating, Chaucer engages in a literary conspiracy of intertextual allusions, rewriting, correcting, adding to earlier voices instead of relying solely on personal inspiration. Personal inspiration was dangerous in classical ages as well. Socrates himself claimed to be inspired, he said, by a personal spirit which told him alone what to believe and to argue. It's partly what got him killed. Inspiration, when it's done by an individual alone, was not virtuous, but seen as suspicious. This is so different from today's writers who perspire in order to work hard and create, or who, who become dispirited when they are accused of plagiarism. Cultural Inquiries Okay, now imagine a continuum of authorship. On one end, we have someone like Homer, who we know absolutely nothing about absolutely. He likely never existed as we might imagine him. His name is probably constructed or fictional, we created him because we are so hungry to have a source, a name. And Homer himself passed on his authorship responsibility by giving it to the muses. So he's at one end of our continuum of authorship, the author who's a not author. And on the other end of our continuum, way over here, are modern writers who demand the spotlight for original genius. People like Milton, Norman Mailer, or Tucker Max, or Lord Byron, or William Wordsworth. Yikes. Each of those people I just accused of ego requires some elaboration, but instead, I'll just say right now as a for instance, the character of Jesus in Milton's Paradise Regained is modeled after the author, Milton. That's ego. Okay, so Homer on one end, the vanished author, and on the other end the egotistical author, the author who says, it's me, it's me. The idea that a poem is the creative expression of a single author, and that this is what makes that work interesting, is a romantic 
idea. It makes sense that it is. People like Lord Byron and William Wordsworth and Walt Whitman were romantic poets. It was all about the ego, the self, and what they were. But that idea, that end of the continuum, that idea that I am the single creative genius of my work, is a mythology. Uh, Sidebar, T.S. Eliot and the New Critics were so turned off by this romantic idea of an author, in this way and in others, that they also wanted to kill off the author, and thus was born the intentional fallacy. Uh, See my episode 2.1 on that. We readers have a desire for authors. We like biographies, arguments for the literary canon, literary influences, what influenced you, schools of thought. Our favorite question for writers, and it's the one they hate the most, where do you get your ideas? By making authors celebrities, by playing into that egotistical idea, we play into a very particular idea of authorship, which is different from where we were with Fowles and the Frith. The point is, neither of them are real as concepts. And there's all this space in between these two concepts that we can inhabit as writers. We are neither absent anonymous, nor are we the unique creationists of our works. But this idea of getting rid of the author this intentional fallacy that the new critics came up with, has created a philosophy of disintegrationism, the goal of which is to remove the mystique of authors by destroying them utterly. Shakespeare, Homer, these others, we suggest that those authors don't exist, that there were conspiracies to put them together, that they are constructed persona, as if that's a terrible thing. Well, of course they were. Michel Foucault reminds us we used to pass around classic stories all the time and not care a jot about who wrote them. And Burke called the author situated subjectivism. The idea of authorship which we have today is fashioned around a unique physical object. The common book. Tales prior to publishing were shared conspiratorially, collaboratively, as belonging to the culture. And what happens today as the common book is found alongside non-book creations? Not first. Films, radio programs, music albums, and the like were built along the same book-like legal lines of proprietary authorship. And there are any number of megacorporations still interested in retaining that legal hold. Disney, Sony, all those folks. But... We have a few thousand years at one end of the continuum of collaborative authorship, and we have three or four hundred years of book-foundationed single authorship. I wonder what's ahead. Let's speculate. The medieval authorship model that we've talked about is largely anonymous, derivative, collaborative, conspiratorial, imitative, interpretative, corrective. That sounds like today. To offer an example, I'd like to borrow from the work of Gabriel Debita and what she talked about with digital authorship. She suggests that digital authorship models are rediscovering the medieval ones, that today's idea of authors is starting to look more like Fowls in the Frith. I'll start with fan fiction. If it's possible you don't know what fan fiction is, it's a genre of writing where an author's work or world or characters are acquired by fans and turned into original or semi-original literature. I could take a Buffy the Vampire Slayer characters and have them go on their own adventures, or Scooby-Doo characters, or anybody else I want. The characters from Supernatural, for instance. In fact, let's talk about Robert Jordan. He was the author of the Wheel of Time series, what was completed after his death, despite his express wishes, by a capable fan. He said, the work is mine, and I hope I don't die before I finish it, but if I do, you guys are out of luck. He died before the last novel was completed. It was given by a fan of his, Sanderson, to complete the work. Now, by the way, the intellectual property for Robert Jordan's work has been given to Amazon, and Amazon is creating a huge series around Wheel of Time, again, against the author's wishes. His individual right to the creative work 
has been lost. In the Wheel of Time Sanderson case, how is this different from the monks continuing the work of Thomas Aquinas and others? And since Sanderson wrote the closing novel pretty well, who can absolutely tell where Robert Jordan's work ends and Sanderson's begins? It's interesting that fan writer Sanderson began an imitation, he moved to conspiratorial writing, and he's now author. Debita suggests that we see this idea first and foremost in fantasy and science fiction works because these works are often seen as less literary, so people are somewhat less protective of them. As the internet grows, how much more of this collaborative, imitative, conspiratorial writing might we expect? A new way back? So where does that leave us? What is the canon of great literature anyway? We often see it as a list of authors and their works who form the center of a collection or culture of art. The Western canon is the most scholastic of these, works worthy of study. Huh. Let's think about that idea for a moment. In medieval times, works selected for the canon were those that would best teach students particular moral ideas. Not necessarily the works that were highest quality, or had the most important ideas, or even crafted well, because those might be more difficult to read or to study. Put another way, the canon of literature is about creating ideal students, or more specifically, creating ideal readers. It's not about the best writers. And that remains true today. Think of the teaching choices today, how how teachers across the world select the text that they will teach their classes. There are controversies over what is taught, when it is taught, at what grade level it is taught, when it is appropriate, when it isn't. But the more we teach particular works, the more they get cemented into the canon. In my own classes, the choices were no different. I chose works that were designed for test success, not works I imagined were the best literature ever, I wanted my students to perform well on a test. That was virtuous success. That made them good students. So I chose books that helped them succeed on that test. And we called that the canon. Later, many writers write works to fit that idea of canon. What readers want. I'm going to write the great American novel. Well, great American novel doesn't mean the most highbrow, well-crafted, most important thematic ideas. It means the one that's going to sell well. And even if the writers fail, readers still have control. What readers give authors is authority. And it is the gift of authority by readers which therefore makes a writer an author. If you know F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby more than you know Jen Browning's Shem of the Sea, it's because we readers made Fitzgerald more popular. I've mentioned the Robert Jordan Wheel of Time issue. Debita also mentions World of Warcraft fiction. It's already collaborative. It's a giant, massive online roleplay game. There's a ton of fan fiction around World of Warcraft. Fan fiction, films, fan films, blogs, stories, wikis, it goes on and on. And like the King Arthur legends of old, it's now a tangled weave of uncertain origins and a collective product of mixed authorship. No matter what the company that produces World of Warcraft does next, it can't afford to alienate those readers and fans now. And while that growing canonical culture of work couldn't be called significant literature, is this maybe the training ground for a new or an old model of authorship? One where we stop asking, who wrote this? What he really thinks. I've been thinking about this role of authorship for several weeks now, and in light of 
Fowls in the Frith, I'd like to talk a little bit about the role of nature that I see here. And maybe we'll learn a little bit about where that falls in our cultural consciousness. Our speaker hears the birds. The birds cause sorrow. Nature, therefore, gives him a tragic idea. So goes the poem. When we live our beast self, we are like nature. When we are our best selves, humans with reason, the ability to think, we are set apart from nature. A sorrow of alienation, that after Eden idea. We have been cast out from the natural, innocent world of Eden, and now we are in a world of despair, pain, and mortality. What's more, our reason gives us the ability to know it. Flesh and blood is the idea, from reason, that underscores our mortality, our sorrow. Animals aren't worried about it. Consider Louise Millard, who sat in that chair by the window often enough. She stared out the window at the spring. What did she think all those times? She heard the birds, felt the sorrow. She was not them, not free, not even sometimes in love. But after Bentley's supposed death, nature gave her an idea, a tragic idea that she could be free. Flesh and blood underscores mortality, thus freedom with Bentley's death. For just a moment, let's read the poem, Fowls in the Frith, as if it came from her. Fowls in the Frith, the fisses in the flood, and I mun wax wood. Such sorrow I walk with, for bist of bone and blood. If we change the speaker to a female, and there's no reason we cannot, though it is historically rare, sorrow over the ironically best of bone and blood, or the beast of bone and blood, the pun in using both versions of best, becomes vengeful against man. I am sorrowful that I cannot be part of nature because of this man, this beast who keeps me here, who is, though, mortal. Now, if you want to go further, a little Freudian sidebar, if you want to read bone and blood as phallic, it's more clear still what that threat represents for her. Let me speculate that Captivity, an idea which dominated our discussion of Kate Chopin's story, is an idea created by reason, in reason, in society. Captivity is not natural. It's not nature. Nature is unreasonable. Captivity belongs to the world of reason, absurdly enough. Josephine at the door, worried about the crazy, unreasonable ideas Louise will take from nature, that she need not remain captive, that freedom is a natural possibility, that she can fly away, free of the ironic best or beast of bone and blood which holds her. How crazy is that? Dare we author such an interpretation? Or would it be better to place this idea out there, upon the page, and step away from it in quiet anonymity? Our next title is a marvelous step into the works of Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and her short story, Tomorrow is Too Far. You'll find a link to the story on our website, waywardstudio.com. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and find us along with so many supplements, bonus episodes, and other surprises at waywardstudio.com. That's waywardstudio, two S's in the middle, dot com. Thanks for listening. And now, go read something.
Music for the Waywards podcast is by Randon Miles. Chapter headings by Natalie Harrison and Sarah Skaleski. The Waywards podcast is a production of Waywards Studio. Find us at waywardsstudio.com.